you're playing really well and you get to the US Open and you're three over par after six holes. And you think, you know, what the hell is going on here? I'm actually playing well. But the, 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 the truth is, is the courses, the conditions are so different to what we play under that it's all about being patient. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Golf Journal podcast. Alongside my co-host, Mike Trosel. I'm Dave Giancola. Today, we've got a great one for you as we're joined by Nick Price, former world number one and three-time major champion. He won the PGA Championship twice and also won the Open Championship at Turnberry. From a USGA perspective, he played in 20 U.S. Opens, including five top 10 finishes, and now serves on the USGA Executive Committee. Quite the resume. Let's dive in. And just like that, Nick Price joins the show. Nick, you've got Mike and Dave from the USGA. How are you today? Thanks for joining us. I'm doing great. Thank you so much, Dave and Mike. Uh, good to be with you guys and, and look forward to catching up and chatting on some of the, the current issues that we have. And uh, hopefully, uh, you know, some of my views and opinions will, will help people to see things a little better. Well, Nick, you know, we'll, we'll get to the current day stuff, but 30 years ago, certainly a big milestone in your career. <laughs> You won the 1992 PGA Championship at Bell Reve in St. Louis at age 35. Of all your victories, I'd have to imagine that one holds quite a special place for being your first major title. And you'd had quite a few close calls in majors before that one. What was the difference down the stretch that week that enabled you to break through? Well, absolutely. It was a huge week for me. And, you know, anytime you win your first major um, you know, it's it's obviously very special because you you never really know when you start out playing golf if your game's good enough to win a major. I mean, obviously there there are a lot of guys who start out who win you know U.S. amateurs and British amateurs and 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 do exceptionally well as amateurs. I had a an okay amateur career, but um, but you know it was it was a great week for me. And I think more than anything else, you know, you always hear the commentators talk about the back nine at a major on Sunday. Um, and, and of course there's nothing truer than that because, um, you know, Jack Nicholas always used to say, I kept my head around me while all of those, uh, I kept my head on my shoulders while all of them are around me, those were losing theirs. Sorry about that. But you know what I'm saying? They, he, he just managed to think very clearly and, 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 uh, under pressure. And, and that was a wonderful thing for him. And, and that's what I think when you win your first major, you sort of look back on you say, well, you know, it was tough, but all I did was I just hit fairways and greens and I didn't try and get ahead of myself. And so uh, I think that's what I had learned with my experiences from having the close shaves and the two British Opens, the two PGAs, uh, a couple of US Opens that I'd played really well in. Um, and you learn, you know, that's what you do. You learn. So I, I matured at 35. Some guys you know, uh, uh, lucky enough to mature younger than that, and they have longer careers. But um, that that was that was a huge milestone for me, for sure. Well, you, you're very modest. Uh, you're making it sound very easy, hitting just fairways and greens. But this was <laughs> the beginning of a very a torrid stretch. You won 14 times in the PGA Tour over four years, from 1991 to 94, including two more majors, uh, the PGA and the Open Championship, both in 1994. You were the number one player in the world. But as you said, it, it took you a little while to, to get to that point, comparing you to some of today's players. You weren't winning multiple events in your early 20s, like a Colin Morikawa or Victor Hovland mm. or Jordan Spieth. You were in your mid-30s. So what do you think helped get you to that point and, and helped you get through some of the tougher stretches earlier in your career 
And what things fell into place for you to play your best golf in the 1990s? Yeah, you know, when I started out, I was a very streaky player. You know, I could play well for a week or two, and then I wouldn't make a cut for the next four or five weeks. Um, and so when I came over here to the U.S., I played five years in Europe, and I came over to the U.S. in the sort of middle of 82 and worked with my good friend David Ledbetter because I really knew that my swing needed to be more repetitive, more consistent if I was going to be a, a really good player. And I guess that's how you, you know, you, you you sort of look at players over the years and you say, well, what made him a really, really good player? And you say, well, he had the ability to, even when he wasn't swinging well or playing well, to produce a score that didn't knock him totally out of contention. So, you know, if you shot, say, a pair of 66s the first two days and, and all of a sudden your game kind of left you on Saturday, you could still manage to finagle a 70 or a 71 and stay in contention. Whereas in times gone by, in early parts of my career, I shoot 78 or 80 or blow myself out of contention. So I started on that uh, that sort of quest, I suppose, with David Ledbetter, who was still in the very early stages of his um uh, teaching career, and uh, I I spent initially with him uh, six weeks down at a course called Greenleaf in Florida, and I just beat balls every day, and we worked a lot on swing plane and whatever. Anyway, I won't go into the basics, but um, I within three four months of me working with him, that was in uh, uh, March April of 1982, July of 1982, I'm leading the British Open with six holes to go, so. I knew that I'd made the right decision in going to see David. But unfortunately, I stumbled coming in. Tom Watson ended up winning. I finished a shot behind. And 25 years old, I'm driving back to London the next day, and I'm saying to myself, you know, I could get really depressed about this, but how many guys at the age of 25 have had the ability or the, the chance to win a major championship, let alone leading by three with six holes to play? So I try to take everything positive out of that. And, and I came over here at the end of 82, went through tour school, got my card. And it was my dream, just like so many other golfers, to play here in the U.S. on the U.S. PGA Tour. And my first year, I won the World Series. I caught, I mean, I just played so beautifully the week up in uh, uh, Akron, Ohio, at Firestone and uh, beat Jack Nicholas in his home state, which is probably one of the hardest things in the world <laughs> to do because I don't think I had, I may have had a handful of fans out there, but uh, outside of that, you know, everyone was obviously pulling for Jack. But, and along with that win, I got a 10 year exemption, which for someone at 26 years old, uh, I mean, I couldn't have wished for anything better uh, to have a future in the game for the next 10 years. And so, I, I set about really trying to get my game into uh, the consistent shape that I wanted it to. And along the way, I had some close shaves, but uh, I basically neglected my, my short game. And I'd spent so much time working on my long game that in uh, 1988, when Sevi and I went head-to-head -head at the British Open at uh, Royal Lytham at St. Anne's, um, you know, we played, both of us played really well from T to green. I probably played a little better than him from T to green, but he, his, he out short gained me that day. He just chipped and putted so beautifully and it's no sour grapes. That's just the way it was. And I can remember saying back, you know, to the U S the next day and saying, I have to start working on my short game. And that's what I did. I started spending a lot more time 
working on my chipping, my putting, my bunker play, just everything around the greens, trying to come up with a lot of different shot variations and, and you know, basically just strengthen up my long game. And that was really the key um, for me because in 89, 90, and, and, and uh, certainly the beginning of 91, I was really knocking on the door. I was having a lot of top three finishes and, and then, 91 came along and I won the Byron Nelson. And the ironic thing about that win was that from tee to green on a scale of one to 10, I always felt, you know, you had to hit the ball at about a seven and a half or an eight out of 10 to win on a Sunday. Well, I hit it at about a five or a five and a half, but I managed to uh, strategize well on the golf course. And my short game was at a nine and a half. And I, I won that tournament with a very, very strong short game. So, it opened up a whole new light for me um, and it, it just a, a whole door, a new door for me because suddenly I felt, hey, if my short game's really strong, I don't have to hit the ball great. And of course, then what happens, it takes a lot of uh, stress and, and pressure off your long game. So you loosen up. And and that was really the, the, the tournament that, that uh, burst the floodgates for me because, again, I go back to um, – you know, confidence and, you know, what, what do you, what, how do you get confident? Because that was one thing that was lacking in my game. Anyway, um, my confidence factor when I won that was probably a five a times five and I just took off. So, um, you know, when 91 came along, that was a, a huge, huge year for me. It certainly was, and I think everything leads to consistency. I think that's what what separates folks that are consistently in the top of the PGA Tour, whether it's the money list, total wins. And you talked about that 1982 Open Championship. You performed so well as a relative unknown, and then go later in your career, and you spend almost 45 weeks as the world's number one golfer. What a juxtaposition to go from that unknown performing well, and now all (laughs) eyes are on you. And looking at today's game, I think of a Colin Morikawa who snuck up on people and he'll never do that again. As someone who spent almost 45 weeks as a world number one, how does that change your mindset of going from the hunter to the hunted? That's a great question. Um, You know, I, I think the hardest thing for a lot of people to realize is that you never really target yourself as one to get to number one. You know, I was never, ever, uh, uh, I mean, obviously back in my mind, it would be nice to get to number one, but it's not something that you go out day in, day out, week in, week out saying, I'm going to get to number one in the world. It's something that's a byproduct of playing really well. Uh, And, you know, our prime motive when you are playing well as a professional, or as any any, uh, golfer for that matter, is to win tournaments. And uh, the byproduct of winning tournaments consistently is getting to the top four or five in the world. Um, and, and I just, you know, for that period, uh, I just, when I played well and I managed my game well, and if my putting was in good shape, I had a very, very good chance to win. And so that was, a, a, you know, a, a major part of my career because, you know, I'd been a journeyman for so many years. And for suddenly to catch this lightning in the bottle, you know, it was uh, it was something that I'd wanted for so long in my life. Um, but, you know, I never looked at it as I was a target. Um, you know, I, I always felt like, you know, if I played well, I didn't care who I was playing against. If I played well, um, you know, I had a I had a good chance of beating that person. So, um, but you know, I, I think the one of the hardest things with coming to number one was that 
the demands on my time. I'd never yep. really been in the limelight for that period, for that four, four and a half years. And, you know, everyone's sort of tugging at you. You've got the magazines, the, you know, the, the, the TV station, everyone, everyone wants a piece of your time and uh, a bit of your time. And, the, and I think the difficulty was managing that for me. And I've never been really good at saying no. Um, I, you know, I try and accommodate as many people as I could. Uh, and, and in 95, 96, I kind of wore myself out a little bit from, from that. Uh, and in hindsight, if I had to do it, I probably would have, do it again, I probably would have um, paced myself a little a little more and done less uh, of the off-course um, activities that, that sort of took me away from what I was doing so well, which was practicing and, and playing and, and, and uh, uh, focusing on my game. That's interesting because when you reach the mountaintop, when you need to keep your game at its finest, that's when people are pulling you in so many different directions. Yeah. It's a very good point. Now, before you you rose to the top of that mountain, you had to get introduced to the game. Grew up, you know, in Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. What inspired you to take up the game? Who introduced you to the game of golf? Well, I had two older brothers. I was very much the, the late one in the family. My eldest brother was 11 years older. Um, and my other brother, Tim, well, my oldest brother was a kid, my, my other brother was Tim, and he was seven years old. And when I was about eight, you know, they, the guys who were, he was 15, and his buddies, he and his buddies always did nicer things than these eight-year-olds. I uh, came back with two of his mates and said, hey, uh, you want to come to the golf course? And I said, sure. I mean, and so we snuck onto this golf course, which was about two miles away, rode our bikes down and he and his two buddies had bought this, uh, not, it wasn't even a set of clubs. It was a bag of clubs out of a barrel almost uh, from a second-hand shop. There were, I think there were five hickory shaft clubs in there. This is 1965, so, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't so long after the World <laughs> War. So there were still hickory clubs and plastic-coated shafts, um, you know. And, and uh, anyway, we snuck on this golf course, and, of course, I didn't realize I was the caddy. So I'm dragging. He said, there's the club. You know, there's, there's like 40 clubs in this canvas old bag, which had a rope strap, which was cutting into me. So I started dragging this thing down the fairway. And this was on a not a very good golf course. Um, and, of course, they were hitting balls all over the place. So I was just walking down the middle. And I, I'd never seen anything so beautiful as when I got onto a green. You know, I'd never seen anything grass manicured so beautifully. And so I started putting a little bit. And and that's basically how I got started in the game was by caddying for him and his two friends. And we went back there a couple of times. Um, and eventually we got caught by one of the members who was really nice. And he said, oh, you know, they do have this little junior golf um, uh, sort of program in the sum, in the in the uh, holidays and a school vacation you can go and play and, and that and so you know pretty soon after that I joined and and there was a, a little every uh, we had about eight clubs 10 clubs in uh, Salisbury and Harare where I grew up and uh, on Mondays Tuesdays uh, Thursdays and Fridays we would go to different courses and they would host us in the morning as juniors and we would play a little medal competition. It cost us about 10 cents in those days to enter. And we had a little golf passport and you would write in your handicap and your scores and they would adjust your handicaps accordingly. And, you know, on a good day, we'd probably get 40 guys. Um, on an average day, I would say between 20 and 24. And you would make up groups with your buddies. And, and that's basically how I got started. Um, and, you know, we had 
I had no idea what professional golf was. We just did it because it was another sport we could play in um, away from school, you know, because we all loved sport at school because we had fantastic weather in our country and, um, you know, rugby, cricket, uh, yeah, just athletics, swimming, you name it. We, we did, we did everything. So, um, you know, uh, when, when we found something to do, in the school holidays, it was a great thing. And golf really got, I got bitten by the bug at an early age. So interesting thing though, you know, I used to play and bat cricket left-handed and, and back in those days, you know, in the early mid sixties, it was very hard to get left-handed clubs. And my, both my brothers were right-handed. So I, I switched uh, after about four or five months of playing, because there were only two left-handed clubs in this, uh, the nets bag of clubs that my brother had bought and so I switched over to right-handed and um, probably the, one of the best things I ever did because you know the success rate of a left-handed golfer back in the 60s starting in the 60s was not very good so <laughs> now it's different the clubs and everything are so much better um, and, and obviously more available. Nick, imagine how good you would have been if you played lefty. I mean, you know, I don't know. know. I don't know. Well, Nick, I mean, quite a journey from, you know, using hickory shafted clubs and, you know, lugging around 40 clubs in a bag. And and I've caddied before, I've caddied heavy bags. I have never carried 40 uh, clubs before. So that was, uh, I was dragging. Certainly a lot. But all the way up to, to becoming world number one in the 1990s. You know, for you, when did that when did that dream first start of becoming a professional golfer? And who were some of the players you started to look up as you got more into the game? I will never forget. In about 1969, I think it was, either 69 or 70. So I'm 12, 13 years old. And one of my uh, buddies' father got a golf magazine from the States. And I, uh, you know, I, I said, can I borrow it? I took it back home and I poured over this thing, you know, with all of the tips that were in there, all the articles, cause I'd never, ever seen so much. You know, anyway, cut a long story short, I went to the back of the magazine and there Jack Nicholas had won this tournament and he won $25,000. And I'm thinking, holy moly. I, my, my mom used to drop me off at the golf course with like 50 cents. You know, so I'm thinking twenty five thousand. You know how much golf I can play for twenty five thousand dollars. And you know, as a kid, that's how you think. You don't really worry about what he won or whatever. And I, I cannot remember the tournament he won. Anyway, that was the first time I really sort of thought about professional golf. Uh, and, and we didn't have very uh, many pros back home, and most of them were just club pros. A couple of the guys were, were playing in the South African tour and not very well. Um, and so, you know, that was, uh, that was how I sort of realized about pro golf. Um, and, and then started learning a little bit more. And, you know, back in those days, we didn't have live TV, uh, live golf on TV. Um, the, the cigarette companies in those days would have 32 millimeter films, which they would, you know, as promotion, um, for their products. And they would come to the clubs and they'd have two nights of showing, you know, Friday and a Saturday night. And, um, and, you know, there'd be the, British or the Masters, or uh, I, I never saw the U.S. Open until I actually got to uh, Europe in about 1975. Um, so, uh, but I'd seen the Masters and, and they had Piccadilly World Match Play and a few of the other events. But so that was when I really got it, got my teeth into it, and that was in the sort of early 70s, maybe 71, 72, when I started realizing 
that there was professional golf and you could make a living. Now, of course, trying to convince my mom, you know, hey, listen, this is something I want to do. <laughs> she said, yeah, you get to school, you get finished, your, you know, you get all your exams done and you, you, you graduate, you'll be fine. We can figure that out later. <laughs> well, Nick, you go from, you know, idolizing your hero in the game, Jack Nicholas, in, in the 1960s, early 1970s, to beating him head to head in the World Series of Golf in Akron, you know, right down the road from uh, from Columbus's hometown. Uh, to playing against some of the best players in the world in the PGA Tour and in the major championships uh, like the U.S. Open. You've played in 20 U.S. Opens in your career. Uh, you finished in the top 10 five times in that uh, particular championship. What is one thing that the general fan may not know about how the top players like yourself approach the U.S. Open, approach this championship in particular? It's it's all about patience. Um, you know, we go from two or three, we, we may play two or three weeks in advance on the PGA Tour, where generally the scores are going to be anywhere from 12 to 20 under par, whatever it is, to win. And you, you're playing really well, and you get to the U.S. Open, and you're three over par after six holes. And you think, you know, what the hell is going on here? I'm actually playing well. But the, 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 the truth is, is the courses, the conditions are so different to what we play under that it's all about being patient. And three over is never a bad score at the U.S. Open, and you know, unless it's a low-scoring Open. But generally speaking, you know, you're not going to shoot yourself out of contention, or uh, if you if you shoot three over each, you know, the first round of the tournament. But there's this mentality that as soon as you get over par, it's like, hey, man, I've got to start attacking. And of course, then one it, one thing leads to another, it gets worse. Instead of playing for your pars and taking a birdie when it comes along. Um, so patience is of the utmost importance at a U.S. Open. It's about just, you know, plodding along, taking a birdie where you can. Um, you know, obviously, things have changed with the equipment and the way the guys can overpower a golf course now. But certainly in our day and before us, it was a patience game. Uh, and it's just you're just not going to shoot the scores that you would normally do in a PGA Tour event or what you're accustomed to shooting. You, you're going to shoot a lot higher. So. You adjust your your approach, um, and and you you embrace the test, and that's why I think you always had guys who were U.S. Open specialists because they figured this out, you know, at a at an early age or in the early part of their um, U.S. Open um, uh, participation. Um, for me, uh, I only learned that toward the end of my career. I sort of kick myself every now and then when I look back. But my my turning point was probably, uh, you know, 92, 93, 94 at the U.S. Open because that was when I sort of said, hey, this is this is about just being patient. And unfortunately, I never got to win one. Um, but I came close a couple of times. Um, the one that uh, was really frustrating was at Olympic Club. I think it was in uh, 1998 when uh, – 97, 98, when uh, Lee Jansen won. That was the best I ever played at the U.S. Open. I, I just didn't putt very well that week. Yeah, you know, you talk about the mindset needed for a U.S. Open, and what's great about the best players in the world is that they can transfer that mindset. Those that, as you alluded to, have figured out kind of that U.S. Open mentality, they can take it to many different courses that offer just a diverse playing atmosphere, right? We go from a Wingfoot or a Pebble <laughs> Beach down to a Torrey Pines and now back up to the Country Club in Brookline, Massachusetts, a course that, unless you watched the 2013 uh, USM, 
parameter you may not have seen since the Ryder Cup or the U.S. Open that Curtis Strange won in 1988. Yes. What do you remember about the country club in 1988, a U.S. Open that you participated in? Well, I loved it. I mean, I, I just thought it was such a great mix of golf holes from you know, long, tough holes um, to shortish holes. With uh, When I say shortish holes, you're hitting shorter irons into the greens and that. But, um, you know, the greens um, were, uh, I mean, they were very, very fair, those greens. They weren't overly undulating like some of the greens that we've played on. And, you know, one of the things that we've seen over the years, and I'll just jump in here a little bit, is that, you know, when you have severe slope on the greens uh, on some of these courses that were built in the 30s and the 40s and even earlier you know they were running the greens at about eight maybe seven on the stimp meter now we've got these greens that are running at 13 and a half 14 so it's very very you have to be very careful as to where you set the pins and whatever it is with that but we can get into that later um, but brook country club has you know uh, just a wonderful shot variety and some beautiful golf holes um uh, it's just steeped in tradition, obviously, with uh, Francis we met uh, winning the Open there. When was it? 19? You guys will have to get 19, me right here. 1913, a year we mentioned. 1913. Yeah, a year we okay. mentioned a lot here at the USGA in, in Brookline <laughs> years. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, excuse my bad history, but uh, I knew it was somewhere around there. But, you know, he won there. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it's just it's just a, a wonderful golf course. And and the setup is obviously going to be very important. And uh, I, I think, you know, John Bodenham is a, and, and Jeff Hall are both exceptionally talented in that regard. So I'm sure we're going to have a great opening and we'll produce another wonderful winner. And a piece of advice, if you were to give a, a young golfer, and, and the reason I ask this is because a lot of these players, they can't go play at the country club right now. There's probably three inches of snow on the ground. Maybe they've never seen it, or they have to go to YouTube to find some clips of old events. How would you, if you were playing and never seen this course, prepare for a U.S. Open when you can't just go up there in the winter and get some rounds in? What's the difference between that and a Torrey Pines that you play every year and can go at, you know, at the drop of a hat? Well, I think most of the guys, you know, um, will will try and get up there beforehand. Yeah. Uh, you know, in June, obviously, if you guys have a nice warm spring up there in the north, um, you know, where the course will start getting into decent shape toward the end of April, beginning of May. Uh, but, you know, we always try and go to a golf course uh, as close when it's going to be as close to the condition we're going to play it under. Mm -hmm. That's not going to happen because the U.S. Open, they're going to peak it exactly for that week. So to go up there and just get a feel for the place to see where you're going. So when you get there that week, you you, you know the, the roads you want to take or whatever it may be, uh, where you want to stay. <clears throat> you know, these are all sort of important parts of the week because – you want to try and stay away from the traffic side, um, you know, all those other parts, but also go to the golf course and so and see, you know, uh, where the first tee is, you know, and, and familiarize yourself with the place. Um, go and play the golf course uh, maybe a couple of times just to get a feel for it. Um, and, and then, you know, when you get there on, on the week of the championship, you, 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 you've, got a, you've got a little bit of a jump on the other guys who haven't done that. But, uh, you know, I don't think, there won't be anyone, as far as I know, who is going to play in that Open, the Open this year that played in 1989. So, um, you know, it's going to be a new experience for all the players. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, Nick, and the entries open for the U.S. Open Championship. Uh, they already have open. They're, they're open right now, so if anyone wants to get in, 
you know, typically every year about 9,000, 9,500 entries to, to earn your way in and, and play with the best players in the world, local qualifying and, uh, and final qualifying. It is a very exciting opportunity uh, for some of the best players out there. Uh, you yourself, as we mentioned, played in, in 20 U.S. Opens. Your relationship with the USGA goes back uh, a long ways in terms of the U.S. Open, but kind of took a little bit of a different road uh, over the last five years. You've served on the USGA Executive Committee. What do you think has been your major contributions in terms of helping with the U.S. Open course setup and giving a player's perspective uh, to some various issues out there? Well, you know, course setup is uh, it, it, it's it, it can be very simple or can be very difficult. Now, the, the, the weather conditions um, always are difficult to predict, obviously. No, no one, it's very hard to predict the weather. They may sort of say to you, you know, on the morning of the Thursday, well, it's going to be windy this afternoon. So, you know, uh, you know, you, you, you set your pins accordingly. But then you get to other places like Shinnecock or Pebble where, they say, well, it's not going to be that breezy. And suddenly the wind picks up. You get this cold, dry wind come off the Atlantic or the Pacific, and it dries out the greens, and the greens turn to crust. And suddenly the pin positions that you put down are, are, are now very, very difficult. Um, and then, you know, for a period of time, all the players would blame the USGA and that. But you, you only have to be on the other side of it to understand, you know, how difficult it can be sometimes. But, um, uh, it, it's been a lot of fun. Um, you know, you often, you, you often, when you're out there playing, you say, well, I would have tried to put the pin a little bit more over here and that, but depending on the firmness of the greens, depending on, you know, the, the speed of the greens, um, you, 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 I always felt that we should err on the side of conservative conservatism as opposed to trying to get too, too, too greedy or uh, what's the word uh, too severe. So I think, um, you know, that's one of the things that I learned, trying to find that balance and then make sure that you do an even amount of pins on the left or the pins on the right to front to back. So you have a really good variation. Uh, change the length of the holes each day. I think that always catches players out. When you play, you know, a pop for one day is a drive and a, and a four iron and the next day you move the tees up and it's a drive and an eight iron and you bring more, you bring different bunkers into play off the tee. Um, and, and so on and so forth. So, you, you know, they always say you have six hard, six medium and six easy pins, but I don't always go for that. I think, uh, you know, the, the conditions of the, the course and the weather will determine where your pin positions on. So, so if you get a little bit of rain and it's soft and that you'll get a little more severe with your pins. But, uh, you know, I, one of the things I've got to say is that, uh, the team that I've worked with over the last couple of years, which obviously John Bodenhammer, um, Jeff Hall, um, Shannon, and Tommy T. I mean, it's such a great team. Uh, they really are an amazing group, and they are very diligent in their work. Um, and uh, I tell you what, the last three opens, um, I thought, you know, have been phenomenal. So, um, um I'm, I'm very happy to have served on that. Uh, and unfortunately, I'm not going to be there this year. Uh, my wife and I are on a vacation, but um, it's in great hands. Don't worry. Well, it's great to have a player perspective out there. Certainly someone with your resume, a three-time major champion, along with Jason Gore, who's now on staff. as you yes. And helping out Chief Championship Officer John Bodenhammer and Senior Director of Championships Jeff Hall and and the rest of the team setting up the course, it certainly adds a, uh, 
you know, it's something I think that's very important uh, to the U.S. Open, and that's uh, you know a challenge from a player's perspective. Someone who, in your case, has played you know uh, 20 U.S. Open championships. So that is that is certainly great to have. And you're thinking about the the USGA, and you, know, you played in so many U.S. Opens. But another thing you did, in, the, in addition to the U.S. Open and the executive committee, uh, you were the recipient of the Bob Jones Award in 2005. I'd have to imagine you know, uh, of the dozens of tournaments you've won and accolades you've received. Mm-hmm. That has to be among your career highlights. Absolutely. Um, you know, there's that was a man. I mean, I, I read a lot and watched a lot of movies and films about him, how I play the game, you, you know, that series of videos that he did, uh, of instructional videos. <clears throat> I must have watched those 50, 60 times. But I, I have nothing, nothing but a huge amount of respect for, for Bobby Jones, and he, he's always been one of my dream foursome, uh, one of the guys who I really would love to have played with. <clears throat> Excuse me, but uh, it's a huge award. I mean, it really is. And all you have to do is look at the recipients over the years, uh, and and it's really been a who's who of golf. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I I was very humbled when when um, you know they they told me that I'd won it because it's not just about golf. It isn't. It's about the the way you played, the way you conducted yourself. You know how much of a humanitarian you are. I mean, just all of those things contribute to that. And so, it's wonderful to get accolades or receive awards for how you performed. But the ones that are really important that I think make your family and friends the most proud of you are the ones that are about how you conducted yourself. You're lucky. I had some great role models when I was a I had a lot of guys who I looked up to. And obviously when I turned pro, you know, I played with Jack and I played with uh, a lot with uh, Raymond Floyd, who I still think was one of the great professionals who always turned out immaculately. Um, and, you know, the way you treated your pro-am partners, just in general, you know, how much you embraced, embraced the game of golf. So, that was huge, and 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 I'm just so happy Julie Engster got it this year because she epitomizes um, all of the values that I think that award uh, stands for. Yeah, she certainly does. It's the USJ's highest honor in recognition of distinguished sportsmanship in golf. Again, Nick Price winning in 2005, and as Nick alluded to, Julie Engster will be the recipient of the Bob Jones Award in 2022. Gotten to know Julie over the last few years. She was recently involved in the big announcement of the presenting sponsor, ProMedica, of the U.S. Women's Open, starting in 2022. A landmark event, not only for the Women's Open and women's golf, but for women's sports as a whole. And couldn't agree with you more. A deserving recipient in Julie Inkster. And with that, Nick, we just want to thank you for your time today. And I know when you were world number one, everyone demanded a lot of your time. And the USGA still is. But we will take you on this podcast (laughs) Anytime you have some free time, give us a call. Thank you. Now that I'm retired, I have a lot more time. So, you know, it's actually, it's great to sit back and and look back and talk back on what's happened. And, uh, but it's been my pleasure guys. And I'll come on, come back on anytime. Thank you. We're looking forward to it. And folks out there, thank you so much for listening today. Awesome insight from Nick Price and what a career. We thank him so much for joining us today on the podcast and also for his service and perspective on the USGA Executive Committee. It never hurts having the perspective of a former world number one. For more about the USGA Executive Committee and all that the USGA does, head on over to USGA.org. For our guest, Nick Price, and my co-host, Mike Trosel, I'm Dave Giancola, and we'll talk to you next time.